thought of a shepherd who was herding his flock in a remote pasture when suddenly a brand new Jeep Cherokee came advancing toward him out of a cloud of dust. The driver, a young man in an expensive suit, Gucci shoes, Ray-Ban sunglasses, designer tie, leaned out the window and asked our shepherd, he said, if I can tell you exactly how many sheep you have in your flock, will you give me one? The shepherd looked at the yuppie and then at his peacefully grazing flock and calmly answered, sure, I'll give you one. Yuppie parks the car, whips out his notebook, connects it to a cell phone, surfs to a Nassau page on the internet where he calls up a GPS satellite navigational system, scans the area, opens up a database and some 60 Excel spreadsheets with complex formulas. Finally, he prints out a 150-page report on his high-tech miniaturized printer, turns around to the shepherd and says, you have exactly 1,586 sheep. All right. What in the world's going on? Is that Ron? Can you hear us? As long as he can hear us, I don't mind hearing him. That'd be nice. It's a great way to start the new year. 1,586 sheep. He says, that's correct, and as agreed, you can take one of the sheep. He watches the young man make a selection, bundle it in his Cherokee. So the shepherd says, hey, by the way, before you leave, if I can tell you exactly what your business is, will you give me my sheep back? The yuppie says, well, sure, why not? The shepherd says, you are a consultant. And the guy goes, yeah, that's right. He goes, how did you know that? He goes, well, it's easy. You turn up here, although nobody called you. You want to be paid for the answer to a question I already knew the answer to. And you don't know one single thing about my business because you just took my dog. (laughs) What is the point? The point is this. Regardless of how intelligent we are or think that we are, there's always room for improvement. And no matter what our area of expertise may be, there are plenty of other areas in life to which we are absolutely ignorant. And so as a result, I think those are two of many reasons why it would be a very good thing to study the Bible. Because no matter how much we think we know about God, how much we think we have learned about God to date, we aren't even beginning to scratch the surface of the uh, complexity of a God who has created the universe, including us and all that is in it. And so, as a result, I think it's important that regardless of how much we think we know, we always need to be open and teachable. And uh, today we're going to begin a new series of messages that will focus our attention on what I'm going to call finishing the work. Finishing the work. The book of Acts, as I mentioned last time we were together that we'll we'll begin studying, is sometimes called the fifth gospel. It's a continuation of the gospel of Luke, and it's a bridge between the gospels and the letters written to various churches. You know, without the book of Acts, these letters or epistles, as they're commonly known, would make little, if any, sense. Now, for those of you who are with us as we went through the the book of Romans or the letter or the uh, letter that was sent to the church that was at Rome, um, we wouldn't be able to understand how in the world people in Rome even heard about Jesus, yet alone put their faith and trust in Him without the book of Acts filling in that missing information. I mentioned that Acts is a continuation of the Gospels. I want you to consider the following as an example. The last recorded fact about Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is the resurrection. 
And as we look at Acts chapter 1, we're going to notice that the resurrection is picked up as a theme in Acts chapter 1. The last recorded act of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is the ascension. And in Acts chapter 1, we find a continuation of the theme of the ascension. The last uh, recorded fact in the Gospel of uh, John, for example, is that of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we see that as well. And so as we go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the, and the last recorded uh, uh, message that's in uh, the book of Luke, for example, is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so all of those are included in this first chapter of the book of Acts. It's a bridge or a connection between the Gospels and what we see as the New Testament epistles or letters written to various churches that are scattered throughout the world. You know, the book of Acts is the first volume of church history. It's the story of the beginning of the church from its explosive beginnings on the the day of Pentecost all the way to the time in which we see these congregations, literally thousands upon thousands of people throughout the known world at that time and local congregations that that were a result of it. Uh, We find the information of how they came to be in the book of Acts. And in fact, the reason that you and I are even here in a church some 1900 odd years later is given to us in this study of the book of Acts. It's an exciting study, it's a dynamic study, it's a life-changing study, and it's one that I hope that you'll be with us throughout, because I guarantee you this, as we study the book of Acts, as we study the Word of God, period, our lives will never be the same. Acts chapter 1, we'll pick up the account in chapter 1, starting with verse 1. In fact, as you're turning there, many have called the the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And I like that, because that's exactly what we're going to see taking place. You know, the acts of the apostles, but the Holy Spirit moving these men to the things that they did. You know, action. Our faith is an action faith. And we're going to see that as we go through it. Acts chapter 1, starting with verse 1, we read these words. It says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had, been, after he had by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. He says, And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking or gazing intently into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now the reason I entitled this particular message, the Finishing the Work, is due to the fact that the work of Jesus Christ is both finished and unfinished. And what I mean by that is his work of redemption, or what he came to do. The Son of Man, the Bible says, came to seek and to save that which was lost. In John 17, Jesus said, I have accomplished the work that you have sent me to accomplish, which is to provide a bridge, so to speak, between an alienated mankind 
and a God who would hold us accountable for our actions. And we'll see more of that in a second. But Jesus came to provide the bridge or, or, or the, the, the way in which man can be reconciled to God. He says, I finished the work that you sent me to accomplish. I've done what I was sent to do. I came to seek and to save that which was lost and I have provided the opportunity for those who would believe to be made right with God. He also went on on the cross, if you recall, and he said as he was dying on the cross, it is finished. There's nothing left that could be done. What Jesus did, he did it completely in its entirety of the only way that man could be reconciled to God. He says it is finished. So from that standpoint, what Jesus came to do, he finished. But yet, on the other hand, the work that he began in many ways is unfinished. And what he wants us to do, and he wants, as we see in Acts chapter 1, the apostles to do, is finish the work that he began. And when we look at this and understand it, if you've got your Bibles in front of you, you'll notice that uh, Luke says, the first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and began to teach. Christ's work of redemption has completed the church work, the church's work of telling people about what Jesus did is just about to begin and continues even to this day. As we look at this particular study in the book of Acts, we're going to see that it sets the path that the church is to follow until the day that Christ returns. And it's important that we realize and understand that it's also an important book because it's a transition. If you think about it, during Jesus' earthly ministry on earth, He was the one who did all of the teaching. He was the one who then prepared His followers to continue teaching the things that He was teaching to them. To take what He was teaching and to turn around and teach others the same truths. So for that standpoint, that work is certainly not finished. But if you think about it, there was a problem. Jesus up to that point had been the primary teacher. He was the one who taught his disciples. There were times where he sent them out and they were to teach what they had already learned, but they were in no way, shape, or form finished with the lessons that God wanted them to learn. Now he was saying, hey, you know what? I am going to be leaving and I'm going to turn this task over to you, which is a very scary thing if you know anything about any of these guys. Because they weren't prepared from a human standpoint to pick up and carry that message with them into the world. Think about it for, for example. Many times Jesus rebuked them on many occasions. He had to correct their false thinking or their false theology, so to speak. They didn't understand the things of God. So the last thing you want some ignorant person that doesn't understand God or the truths of God to then go into the world and try to help people understand who God is or what he has to say. Many times Jesus would turn to them and rebuke them for their ignorance of spiritual truth. He'd say, listen, you got ears, you can't hear. You got eyes, you can't see. What is it, you know, that, that, that you're so dense? Now, I know today people are, oh, man, it's like, that's not politically correct, but it was true. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. And he told them that. Many times they spent their time arguing about who was going to be greatest when Jesus set up his kingdom. And they were afraid to tell Jesus that. There were times that they were arguing, the Bible says, fiercely, intensely. They were rolling up their sleeves and they were ready to take each other on about who was going to sit at Jesus' left hand, who was going to sit at his right hand, who would have special privileges and responsibilities, who would be in key leadership positions, who would be the key decision makers. And they argued about it often. In fact, one time Jesus turned around and said, hey, what are you guys arguing about? And the Bible says they didn't say anything because we've, the gap is filled for us. They said, hey... Uh, they didn't say anything because they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus began to teach them. At that point, again, he began to teach them, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you've got to be a servant to all. If you want to be first in God's eyes, you must be a servant in the eyes of the world. If you want to be great, you've got to be a servant. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. 
and he used it as a teaching time. They weren't ready. And how do I know they weren't ready? Because when he was arrested, they all disappeared. When he was in the garden praying before the crucifixion, they all fell asleep. When the soldiers came and arrested Jesus, they all scattered. When Peter followed and saw Jesus on trial from a distance, a little 12-year-old girl, 10-year-old girl came up to Peter, the big, strong fisherman who pulled in at one time 300 fish in a net. The guy was a stud. And, and, you know, I could just see it now. You know, today it would be like, oh, there's the new aerobic program. Everybody would be down there pulling in. You know, it's like, okay, tie boat, pull it in. We're all, you know, whatever. You know, we're all looking for some easy way. But anyway, so... uh, Get back to the point. Uh, this little girl's looking up at him saying, you were with him. And Peter's like, no, I wasn't with him. He said, no, you were with him. And he starts swearing at her. You don't know what you're talking about. Get out of my face, kid. I mean, it's like, and he starts, I was like, man, you're going to turn the message over to him? And at the crucifixion, all of them but one were gone. After the resurrection, when they heard the tomb was empty, they scoffed at the idea that Jesus rose from the dead. They hid in a room away from all the public so that they wouldn't be persecuted and found guilty with him. They were a bunch of wimps. And they were going to be the ones that Jesus was going to turn over this mission of sending this message out into the world. Wow, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? They weren't ready. But to get them ready, we find in this chapter six resources that are given to them and subsequently given to us so that we are better prepared to go into the world and tell people what it is that God wants them to know. Six resources. I'm going to do my best to get through six of these. We'll see what happens. No guarantees, no money back. Number one, let's take a look first of all at the message. Notice he says, the first account I compose. The first account is the Gospel of Luke. All you need to do is go back to the Gospel of Luke and read in Luke chapter 1 that Luke did an exhaustive examination of all that Jesus did, who he was, what he did, the many signs and the many wonders, the miracles as we would call them, that Jesus performed. Luke was a physician. And I can only begin to imagine how excited a physician was to be in the presence of one who defied all the medical expertise of his day. A person who could cause the eyes of blind people to see, could cause those who had never walked to walk, to cause those who couldn't hear to hear, to cause those who were dead to be raised back to life. Dr. Luke did a careful examination. The first account is the Gospel of Luke. A very careful examination of the life of Jesus Christ. He wrote to a man by the name of Theophilus. In the Gospel of Luke, we find that he is the most excellent Theophilus, meaning that he was a person of Roman stature and a person of Roman society and and, and standing. He was a very prominent individual. And Luke, inspired by the Spirit of God, wrote an account to Theophilus for the purpose of confirming to him that Jesus was and is indeed, indeed the Savior of the world. He wanted him to become convinced that putting his trust and faith in Jesus Christ would be well-placed. And so he writes this letter, inspired by the Spirit of God, that we have the privilege of being able to read and study at any time. And he says to him, O most excellent Theophilus, those, we were eyewitnesses of the things that I'm about to share with you. Now what's interesting to me is this, from the time of the Gospel of Luke to the book of Acts, he drops the title, Most Excellent. 
And I like that, and I'll tell you why. Because I've got every reason to believe that from the time that Luke wrote to him and Theophilus read the account, that he had come to faith in Christ, and he was now a brother in Christ, so he drops the formality of the title that Theophilus was now a brother or a believer who had come to faith in Christ. He went from most excellent to Theophilus, a fellow believer in Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful truth as we look at that. And so as we consider all of these things, we notice that you know the, the gospel accounts are largely concerned with the earthly life and ministry of Jesus, revealing all that, as, as we read here, that he began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up. It's important to recognize and understand that the miracles or the signs, and I like the word signs better, and I'll tell you why. Because signs point to something. Signs point to something. When Jesus was asked at one time what was easier to do, or he asked the crowd, is it easier to tell someone that he can forgive their sins or to cause a lame man to walk? The crowd obviously said, hey, anybody can say you're forgiven. What power or authority do you have in order that we would believe you have the authority to forgive our sins? I like to personalize it. Now, if I was there, I would have been like, look, if you're going to tell me you can forgive my sins, what authority do you have or what power has been given to you that you can convince me that the word that you're telling me are accurate, reliable, valid, and trustworthy. And Jesus said, I'll tell you right now. I can tell you that your sins are forgiven, that I have the ability and the power and the authority to forgive your sins, and I will demonstrate it by the fact that I will tell this man who's never walked to stand up and walk. If I can cause him to stand up and walk, I certainly can take away your sins. And that's exactly what he did. See, all the signs and the miracles were given to us so that we would believe that Jesus is and was who he claimed to be, the Son of God in human flesh. Everything that he did had a purpose to it. While that person may have enjoyed temporary healing from the standpoint that even though that person could get up and walk, ultimately, subsequently, one day, there was appointed for that person, even a person who can walk would ultimately have to die and give an account to God. So that relief was temporary at best, regardless of how many years that person could walk, see, hear, or whatever. The purpose of all of those things was that a person had an opportunity to get right with God and enjoy spending eternity in the presence of the God who created them. That's why it all happened. If the disciples were to finish the work that Jesus began, it was imperative that they understood the message that they were to proclaim. I mean, that's a no-brainer if you think about it. Hey, look, you know what? If they're going to finish what Jesus began, they needed to understand what it was that he was teaching them. And as I was going through and preparing this, man, there were some things that immediately jumped out at me. It's like, what were the things that Jesus taught? What were the things that they had heard and now were in turn told to go into the world and to teach the same truths? Well, some of the truths of what he taught were that man is a sinner. He taught the truth of sin. That every person born into the world all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We learned that from our Roman series, None are righteous, no, not one. We've each turned and gone astray. That message Jesus confirmed and affirmed. Every human being is a sinner before God, condemned by God, and therefore worthy of the judgment of God. We're all sinners, condemned and deserving of judgment. He taught that He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He taught the reality that He was indeed God in human flesh. He said, even before Abraham existed, I am. He said, wait a minute, you're asking, show us the way to the Father. And he said, Philip, wait a minute. He said, you've seen me. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. For I and the Father am one. So there's no other way, he said. In that same passage in John 14, he said, there's no other way for man to be saved. There's no other way to get to heaven but to believe in me. 
and to believe upon me and to believe what I did for you. Those are the truths that he began to teach. He went into the world and he told people, he said, listen, he told his disciples, it's, it's, it's mandatory. I must suffer. I'm going into Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must die. Why? Because he knew without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sin. I must suffer. I must die. But don't get all bummed out and discouraged by that. Because just as Jonah was raised from the belly of a whale at three days after he was taken in, so the Son of Man will be lifted up and he'll be raised up three days later. I'm, gonna, I'm telling you now, even as discouraged as you're going to be when you see me crucified, three days later, I will raise from the dead and meet me in Galilee. That's where you'll find me. And yet, when he was raised from the dead, these same people that he told he would do this, and these same people that saw everything that he did prior to that, they were hiding. And when the women said the tomb was empty, they came and they scoffed at them and said, you're nuts. There's no way that a dead person could raise. Can you imagine? These are the same people that saw Jesus raise people from the dead and, 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 and raise them up so they could walk and, and cause them to see who were blind and their ears to open that could never hear, but they couldn't believe that Jesus could raise himself up from the dead. And so the message as we look at this is a message that we're to go into the world and we're to share the same message and all those things I just shared with you are just scratching the surface of the things that Jesus taught. It's vitally important that we're to, if we're to finish the work that Jesus began that we grow in knowledge of truth. Regardless of how much you think or I think I know, there is much, much more to learn. The prayer of the Apostle Paul to the, to the Colossians is this. Colossians 1, 9 through 11, he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Notice that, increasing in the knowledge of God. Continuing to grow in your faith. To grow in your understanding of spiritual truths. To be able to grow so that you know and understand what it is that you believe. In 2 Timothy 2.15, here's what Paul said to, Tim to Timothy. He said, be diligent. And that, that means work hard. Be diligent. Work hard to present yourself approved to God as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed. Handling accurately the word of truth. You shall know the truth and the truth will set you free from the ignorance of the world that you live in and your own personal ignorance as well. You shall know the truth. He said that you'll handle the truth so that you won't be ashamed, you won't be embarrassed, that you'll understand exactly what it is to believe. He went on and he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 18, one of my favorite passages, he says that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, adequately equipped, for every good work that has been prepared for us to do before the foundation of the world. That we would understand truth, teaching. The writer of Hebrews rebuked his writers for the ignorance of God's truth when he said, Some of you by this time ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. I want all of us to understand the longer it has been or the further away from the day that we have come to faith in Christ and the further away that that has been from an historical reference point. 
In my particular case, I, I've mentioned many times, it was 1978. Here we are, what, 23 years later. God doesn't want me to be at the same place I was in 1978 as I will be in the year 2001 and God willing 2002, 2003, 2004. He wants me to be growing. He wants me to be learning. He wants me to know more today than I knew yesterday. He wants me to know more tomorrow than I do today. He is not content in any of us being ignorant because He has entrusted to you and me the great message that we're going to go out and share with people. And if we don't know what it is that we're to share, how are we going to do it? We won't. And that's exactly what happens. I want you also to understand that mere factual knowledge of truth isn't enough to save any of us. Knowing that you're a sinner, knowing that you're guilty before God, realizing you'll be judged and condemned accordingly, even knowing that Jesus Christ came to die for your sins personally, and that if you believe and trust in Him, will make you a child of God, and that you will no longer be held accountable. There's there no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Romans 8, we learn that we'll never have to give an answer for sin if we trust in Jesus Christ and Him completely and what He did on the cross and His subsequent resurrection. If we believe that, we'll never be held accountable for sin. Knowing all of that, as I mentioned, the difference from our head to our heart is the difference between going to heaven and going to hell. Knowing something in your head but not lived out in your life is not appropriating the things that we say that we believe. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that He's raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with our heart, man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with his mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. We may know things in our heart. And I had heard that message many times. I grew up in a church that told that, that Jesus died for your sins, that you're a sinner, all those things that He rose from the dead. I heard that. Many times I heard that. But it didn't make any sense to me. It didn't mean anything to me. And it wasn't until I believed that He died for me that I became a child of God according to the Word of God, that I was born again, that I was washed or regenerated by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, that I came alive spiritually so that then I heard those things and I understood what they meant. I can hear all of that, but hearing that without believing that, hey, that's why God says that the Gospel is the power of God to salvation. But only for those who believe. Only for those who surrender their hearts. Only for those who surrender their will to God and say, God, forgive me and fall upon His mercy. I'm in need of your forgiveness for I really understand that I'm a sinner. See, knowing that and appropriating that are two different things. And that's part of the message that we're to tell people. Notice that Jesus also set the pattern, if you look at verse 1, in behaving and proclaiming because, look, as Luke observed, He began to do as well as teach. He perfectly lived the truth He taught, and as a result, the message could be clearly understood. Did you hear that? He lived the truth that He taught so that the message could be clearly understood. I can't emphasize that enough. If we are to proclaim the message or finish the unfinished work of Christ, we must also live the message that we proclaim so the message cannot be misunderstood. You following that? Think about it. If Jesus, as we trust and believe in Him, can free us from sin, would it not stand obvious to argue if I am going to tell someone that who is stuck in their sin, so to speak, 
or living a life that's not pleasing to God because they are not right with God, because they're sinners, they're separated from God, and the life that they live is just an example of the fact that their hearts aren't right with God, if I am going to share with them that Christ can free them from that sin, would it not be hypocritical and also ironic if I were also living in the same sin in which I'm telling them that Jesus could free them from? What in the world are we thinking? Jesus can free you from sin. And then we go about falling into it on a regular basis. What we need to understand and recognize is this. Yes, I know, and the argument's going to be, but none of us are perfect. Hey, you know what? I understand that. You understand that. We all understand none of us are perfect. But failure for the Christian should be the exception, not the lifestyle. It's got to be the exception. If we're to preach the message that Jesus frees from sin, it better be the exception when a Christian falls into sin than it is that we live continually in sin. And in fact, the Word of God says, you who live in sin with no sense of conviction or remorse about it and no sense that what you're doing is wrong, you better examine yourself to make sure you've really come to faith in Christ. Don't be deceived. Because you know what? Hey, a person that has come to faith in Christ and, and, and chooses to sin is convicted about it on a regular basis. And if you're not convicted about it, guess what? Then you better examine yourself because you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because the Spirit of God will not allow His people to live in the muck and slop with the pigs without saying, what is wrong with you? God has something much better to offer you. Showing, show yourselves to be an example of good deeds, sound in speech, showing all good faith that you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Titus 2, 7, 8, and 10. Allow me to risk being a little personal for a minute, if you don't mind. Have you ever wondered why Christians don't make much of a difference in the world? Have you ever stopped and thought, wow, you know what, if we're supposed to be living this dynamic life, we've been freed from sin, I mean, God wants to use us to change the world, why aren't we changing the world? Why aren't we making much of a difference? For those of you here last time, we talked about being salt and light, and when the salt loses its tang or its saltiness, it's good for nothing to be trampled underfoot by men. And if the light grows dim, it can't point the direction of which way to go. You know, the message is we want to point everybody to sin and Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. But if the salt has grown salt, saltless or tasteless, then why? Let me give you a couple reasons. Number one, Biblical ignorance. That's the first reason Christians don't make any difference in the world. Biblical ignorance. Too many of us don't know what we believe or why we believe what we claim to believe. And when someone asks us or challenges us why we believe what we believe or what it is that we believe, and they begin to challenge the things that we say to them, many of us just get frustrated and angry because we don't have answers to share with them. And then we always get down to the duh, most ignorant statement any Christian to make and everybody is, and that is, well, you just have to have faith. What? You just have to have faith? What does that mean? Faith in what? Trust in what? Understanding of what? What am I supposed to have faith in? If I'm going to get in an airplane, I've got to have faith that they want to keep the, the plane in the air when it's supposed to be in the air and come down on the ground when it's supposed to come on and down. Uh, and you know what? Maybe I'll look at safety records. Or I always, don't ever do this, by the way, anymore. But I always peek in the, in the cabin. That's the scariest thing to do. Man, there was, a, there was a kid in there when we were flying. Where were we? we were going to St. Martin. We were in the Caribbean. I looked in the cabin. There was a kid in there younger than my son. And I stopped. I started talking to him. I wanted to see his driver's license. 
You got some ID on you? It's like, oh man, you know? And, and, but, but, but faith is always in something tangible. We have a reasonable, rational, logical faith that is founded upon truths and principles and factual evidence. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 3, listen to this. We're told, 1 Peter 3.15, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. To give a defense. The word is a a word we use, apologetics, or the study of of the faith. We are to be able to give a, a, a defense or to explain why we believe what we believe. Why do I believe that man is sinful? Why do I believe that Jesus Christ is God? Why do I believe that He died on the cross? Why do I believe that His death is sufficient for the sins of the world for those who believe? Why do I believe that He rose from the dead? Why do I believe the Bible is reliable and trustworthy? Why do I believe this? we got people, we quote the Bible all the time, and then you go, hey, well, we know, why do you believe the Bible? Because you just got to have faith. Now, you maybe talk to somebody who says, you know what, I, got, I, I believe that there's no such thing in gravity. And I'll be able to take them and hang them by their heels from the top of my roof of my house. And I'll be able to ask them the question, are you really convinced about what you say you believe about not believing in gravity? Now, you would think that as they're hanging there and their blood's rushing to their head, there's a sensation that says to them, I might be wrong about this theory. (laughs) But we need to be able to explain to them why we believe what we believe. And so I could say, well, here, instead of dropping you, let's drop something else off the roof. Let's do it ten times. Let's do it twenty times. Let's do it a hundred times. There's something consistent that happens. Whatever we drop falls to the ground. That's called gravity. Have you changed your mind? And so we need to be able to understand when somebody comes to us and says, well, I don't believe the Bible. And I can say, here's the reasons I do believe in the Bible. Then I can turn around and ask them, now, why don't you? And they could say, well, there's all kind of contradictions. And I can say, well, give me an example, and maybe I can help you understand it. And they go, well, I don't have any example. I just heard. Really? Don't you feel stupid right now? (laughs) It's like, oh, yeah. Okay, good. Well, do you mind if I tell you anyway why? I mean, that's what led me to trust in Christ. The person said, hey, what do you believe? And I don't know what I believe. Well, can I tell you what I believe? Well, yeah, you go ahead and tell me because if somebody else asks me next time, I'll be ready. I'm not falling in this trap anymore. But then when I heard, I was like, wow, that's pretty powerful evidence. It's really important that we do that. We're to be able to give an answer or a defense for the hope that was within us. Oh, you know what? Let me share something with you. Several weeks ago, you know, we had all church service for, East, uh, for uh, Christmas Eve. And I had somebody come up to me and say, um, he said, um, you know, someone said that when you announce those just one services where we're not going to meet, you know, for Bible study, that you don't really do it enthusiastically. And I, and, and I just want to clarify something for everybody. There's a reason I don't do it enthusiastically, and it's because I'm not enthused about not meeting. Did everyone understand and hear that okay? Because I'm not enthused about not meeting. And the reason I'm not enthused about not meeting is that, you know what? we got a whole bunch of stuff we need to learn, and we don't have much time to do it. So when someone says, you can't meet, I get really discouraged and bummed out about that. And I'm sorry if I make the announcement next week we're not meeting, we're having a one church service. Um, You know, that's tough. And, and, And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. We only meet... Four Sundays a month. That's one hour, two hours, three hours, four hours. If you take away one of those Sundays, that's 25%. I know it's a math problem. Stick with me. Okay? 
That's 25% of the time. Now, I'm sitting there thinking, I'm thinking, you know what? Four hours a month. I spent more than that yesterday watching two NFL games. <laughs> and that doesn't count the high school basketball game we went to last night. I mean, that's one day, and I'm going to shoot another four today. Because I'm looking for the spiritual truths I told you about last time that we learned from sports. God bless sports. But the, the point I'm trying to make is four hours. Four hours? And you're going to take one of them away? I'm not going to be excited about it. Why? Because I believe this with all my heart that we should have as many opportunities to study and to learn and be taught the Bible as there are gifted people to do it. And if that means we have Sunday school classes, as some churches call them, or Bible studies or whatever it is, and high school group meets and the college group meets and young adults meet and, and junior high meets and the kids group meet and we have worship services and we have Sunday evening services and we have Bible studies during the week and we have small groups that meet during the week and we got people that are discipling one another one-on-one. -on -one. Man, you know what? We can't do enough of that. So I get a little bummed out when we miss an opportunity. And I would hope that you, as God has gifted you to serve those around you and equip those around you for the work of ministry to finish the task, I would hope that if someone came to you and said, you can't do what God's gifted you to do, that you would be disappointed too. I would hope that would be the case of all of us. Now, I'll go along with it, but it doesn't mean I'm going to like it. It doesn't mean I'm going to fight it in the process because what I just shared with you is something I, I really believe with all my heart. We can't know enough about God. We're to grow in our knowledge of Him. And we're to understand the message so we can share that message. And there's not a lot of time to do it. I am so discouraged that four hours a month, if that's all that you and I are getting as we study the Word of God, I want you to compare that to the number of hours you watch a television. I want you to compare that to the number of movies that you go to in a month. I want you to compare that to the amount of time you spend reading secular books and magazines. And I want you to tell me that we shouldn't have as many opportunities as God allows with the people that He's gift to teach the Word of God, to get the message, to finish the work of Christ. And I will tell you that you're not standing on very solid biblical ground, and I am, and I'm confident to be able to proclaim that. We need to recognize and understand that. Also, the second reason that we become ineffective as Christians is that those who know biblical truth all too often do not live it. One, we're ignorant. Then we learn it. Then we don't live it. And the contradiction in that message is too, too great. Before I came to faith in Jesus Christ and someone tried to tell me about Jesus and about sin and about forgiveness and about redemption and all the things that we're talking about, the person that I saw share that with me, I disqualified them immediately because, you know what, there was nothing attractive about their life. They were hypocritical and spoke out of both sides of their mouth. Say, oh, you need to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. And I'm looking at that person going, you know what, you need to, you need to stop and maybe look in the mirror and take note of that message you're sharing with me because you're a mess. We need to live it. We need to live it. That's why Robert Murray McShane a 19th century Scottish preacher wrote these words. He says, Do not forget the culture of the inner man. He said, I mean of the heart. How diligently the Calvary officer keeps his saber clean and sharp, and every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword. You're His instrument. 
and I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his great name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument, will be the success. It's not great talents God blesses so much as a likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of a holy God. Wow. What a powerful message it is when we proclaim the truths of God and we confirm those truths in the manner in which we live our lives. We need to all do a self-examination or a personal inventory and ask the question this. Am I successful in finishing the work that Jesus began? If not, why not? Is it because God can't use me? Because I'm not a clean vessel? Because the message is hypocritical? Because I say one thing out of my mouth, but my life shouts something entirely different? If so, I would challenge you as I challenge myself to confess that sin before God. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that when we go into the world to share the message of God's great mercy and His forgiveness, and we'll talk more about that, that the person who's hearing it can't disqualify what we say because of the manner in which we live our lives. In verse 2, he says, until the day he began, until the day when he was taken up, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Jesus continued to teach the essential realities of his kingdom until the day he was taken up. He continued to teach. On the road to Emmaus, he taught the disciples everything from Moses to the prophets and everything the Word of God said in order that they would understand that what was happening took place exactly according to the timetable and the plan of God. He continued to teach them. Men and women, God's classroom doesn't have a semester break. God's classroom doesn't close for summer. God's classroom doesn't shut down for a month. How many times have we used those types of excuses in order not to meet to study the Word of God together? I think of Bible studies that we've had in our own home and it's like, well, it's, you know, it's Christmas time. And it's such a busy time. Let's not meet and study the Word of God. Nah, let's just take eight weeks off. Let's take six weeks off. Let's take four weeks off. Let's take a break from the Word of God. But in the meantime, we don't take a break from reading the newspaper or watching TV or going to the movies or anything else. There's always a reason to take a break from studying the Word of God. And the reason for it is that we just don't get how important it is to the effectiveness of our Christian lives. It is critical it is vital. It's the message that every one of us need to understand. He gave orders. It was a command. It's not an option. He commanded them to go into the world with this message. The importance of this instruction in preparing these men for finishing the work that Jesus began cannot be overemphasized. He was building in them, in, into them the teaching that was to be later called, as we'll see, the doctrines or the apostles' doctrines, the original body of truth for the church for all ages. Anytime there's a church in trouble, I'll guarantee you it is a church who has, who has deviated from the outline that's laid specifically for us in the book of Acts. I'll guarantee it. And you can find it immediately and you can point to it. Now whether a person or a group of people or whatever would be subject and submit their will to God's will is always a challenge for all of us. But we need to recognize and understand it. 
before we move on to the next resource, which means there's no way in the world we're going to do six of these today. <laughs> but, see, that's what I'm talking about. We got a whole bunch of stuff, and we just don't have enough time to do it. Anyway, before we move on, I want to make this one statement. Spurgeon said this. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, We might preach till our tongue rotted, till we exhausted our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit uses the Word to convert that soul. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. It says, So it is blessed to eat into the very heart of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord so that your blood is bibline and the very essence of the Bible flows from you. When someone asks us a question, we should immediately, by the Spirit of God living within us, think of a verse or passage that would be able to answer that particular question. When somebody says, what do you think I should do? We should be able to the Word of God and say, hey, you know what? Here are the passages I would suggest you study. I don't want your convictions to be based on what I tell you. I want your convictions to be on solid ground, and that is the truth of the Word of God. Here's what I would suggest that you study. Here's what I would suggest that you look at. And after you've studied that and you've looked at that and you've prayed about it and you want to continue to talk about it, then we can continue to talk because there's safety in a multitude of godly counselors. But your convictions have to be forged in your own relationship with God through the careful study of the Word of God and through prayer and through the Holy Spirit's presence in your life to guide you and to teach you into all truths. Don't believe what you believe because somebody else told you to believe it because in the moment of crisis that's not solid ground enough. You will desert that and you will abandon that quicker than anything you've ever heard or learned because without the solid conviction in your own heart you will not believe what somebody else tells you to be the truth. We need to recognize that. How about you? Do you know what you believe and why you believe it? Hey, you may even be here today and you don't believe anything that I'm saying. And you know what? And that's perfectly fine. The only thing that I would ask you is this. Why don't you believe? Do you have good reasons not to believe? What are the reasons that you don't believe? And I'll tell you what most of them always, what most of them always come back to. Because the people that I knew who claimed to be Christians were people that, you know what, I have no interest in being like. Or I had a bad experience with a Christian. I had a bad experience going to a quote, church. Therefore, I don't want anything to do with God anymore because I had a bad experience with people. Only thing I would challenge you to consider is this. You probably had a bad experience pumping gas one time with a gas station attendant. You know what I'm saying? Have you given up putting fuel in your car? No. What do you do? You go to a different gas station. You had a bad experience with a contractor because you probably didn't call us. But that's a whole different subject. However, but you don't give up on what you are convinced you need to do. In your pursuit of knowing God, don't throw God away because people have disappointed you. Because God will never disappoint. Those who seek Him shall never be disappointed. What is the message that we're to share with the world? What are the resources that God gave us? We all need to be receptive to God and His truth. Does God really want people just to believe in Him without giving any evidence as to His existence or as to what He says being true? Does God really want people just to believe in Him because we tell people, well, you just need to believe in Him? And the answer to that is absolutely not. God wants us all 
to have absolutely convincing evidence so we know when we put our trust and faith in Him that it is in good hands and absolutely reliable. And how do I know that? Oh, the second resource that He's given. Oh, my. Look at this resource. Verse 3. What we'll call the manifestation. To these, speaking of the apostles, He also... This is the most exciting verse in the Bible. And that says a lot, because there's a lot of verses in here. But man, I read this, and I, well, at least it's the most exciting verse that I can read this week, today, and tomorrow there'll be another new exciting verse. You're probably picking up on something. Oh, this is pretty exciting to me. I don't know if you noticed that or not. Um, anyway, verse 3. To these he also presented himself alive. Alive. After his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. To these, these men who are going to continue and finish the work that He began, to these men, He appeared alive after His suffering. He presented Himself alive. And He did so by many convincing proofs. Think about that. What were some of the convincing proofs? Now, don't forget who's writing this. A doctor is writing this. You don't think a doctor was excited about someone who died and was buried coming back to life three days later? You don't think a doctor would be excited about studying that phenomenon? Checking into those facts and those truths? I mean, I think about it in your own terms and being able to understand this. And I want this to be a word picture that you can walk away with and never forget. But can you picture going to a funeral of a loved one or you know, invited to one or whatever it is the circumstances are. And you go into the mortuary and they have an open viewing. And there's a body laying in a casket who has been dead for three days or five days or however the length of time doesn't matter because I don't want you to get hung up on that as much as just the word picture. And as you walk over to check into it, that person says, Hey, can you give me a hand? Can you get me out of here? Just pull, pull me. And you know, it's like, and to sit up and go, Hey! I'm back. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, you talk about, how excited would you be? After you woke up. <laughs> And change your shorts. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? How excited would you be? Oh man, I mean, I can't even imagine how excited that got to be. Can you imagine how excited they were? I mean, man, alive. And, 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 and he said, by many convincing proofs. What are some of the convincing proofs? Let me just kind of go through and we'll wrap up this point today and we'll have to come back for more. But what are the convincing proofs? This is really important because, you know what? These are some of the reasons that I give when someone says, why do you believe in Jesus? Number one, there's an empty tomb. Think about that. He died. They put him in a tomb. They rolled a stone down a hill to cover the tomb. A huge stone, by the way, that there's no way you could ever physically push it back up. That's the way they sealed the tombs. They sealed the tomb with a Roman emblem or signet saying if anybody messes with this tomb, you do so at the, at the, at the uh, eminent reality of death. You touch that tomb, you die. They had guards that were posted at the tomb 
because they had heard Jesus had made the claim that after three days he'll raise from the dead. So they had to make sure that that didn't happen, that no one came to steal his body, and that the body never left the tomb. Well, guess what? That tomb is empty. And when the women came and they looked in the tomb and they ran back to tell the apostles and the disciples that Jesus wasn't in the tomb, they didn't believe them. Even though Jesus said, I wouldn't be there, but meet me in Galilee. They all ran back to the tomb. They looked in the tomb. They saw the tomb. The tomb was empty. Roman government knew the tomb was empty. And they came up with a conspiracy theory to say, look, you know what, just say that somebody came to steal the body at night. That's crazy. If somebody came to steal the body at night, those soldiers would have been executed for not doing their resp- fulfilling their responsibility. And anybody that they would have found later on that had the body would have been executed as well. But there was no body that was stolen because Jesus rose from the dead. The tomb was empty. The second thing is that he had a physical body. He appeared to them. He ate with them. He spent time with them. On the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, he walked with the disciples and, and they were all bummed out and dejected because of the things that happened to Jesus. And he said, what are you all talking about? And they said, are you the only person in all this area in the whole world that doesn't know what happened here this weekend? He goes, no. And from Moses, through the prophets, he explained to them that God's timetable was just on time and that he had to suffer, he had to die, and he was raised from the dead. And their eyes were opened and saw the resurrected Savior. He ate with them. He spent time with them. He appeared, which we'll talk about in a second, but he had a physical body. It wasn't a ghost. It wasn't a spirit. It was a physical body. And I'll talk to you about that in a second because that's really important. But I want you to notice the phrase, he appeared to them. He had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles. He had chosen to these. He also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. Appearing to them. The phrase means this. He'd show up. He'd teach them something. He'd disappear. He would appear behind locked and closed doors. That's where he found them all hiding to begin with. Everybody was there but Thomas. They were all hiding. It's like, what are you guys hiding about? You know, he would appear to them. He would teach them. He would disappear. He would come back. He would appear again. He would disappear. He would appear again. And I love that. And I'll tell you why I love that. Because he was getting ready for the truth that he taught them that, you know what, that I am going to come back in the same way that I went. We'll have to talk more about that next time. But, But that's the point. He appeared to them. He would disappear. How about the public appearances? Why do I believe that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be? Why is he trustworthy for us to put our faith and trust in him? That tomb was empty. He had a physical body after his resurrection. He made public appearances. These public appearances were done not in secret as so many people thought. And at the times that he did these appearances, there were the miracles. There were miracles. Miracle after miracle, sign after sign. He had them go fishing. They'd fished all day, didn't catch a thing. And he said, oh, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. Well, anybody that knows anything about fishing, you throw your nets on this side of the boat, guess what? It's going to go underneath the boat. It's going to go on the same area. And the fact is that, you know what? By him saying, throw your nets on the other side of the boat, and then all of a sudden they had to catch a fish that they couldn't even haul in. The nets were breaking, and he made it exceedingly abundantly obvious to them that he was who he was. And they said, Jesus, my Lord, my God. I mean, they were just like, wow, it's Jesus. Because nobody can make fish appear out of nowhere but God. Those signs and those miracles he did for the purpose that we would believe in him. Miracles and signs that point to him as being the savior of the world that he is who he claims to be. Man, the miracles and the signs that he did after his death, after his resurrection, were to validate and confirm that he was worth putting our trust and faith in. 
And then the appearances that he made to Mary Magdalene, to two women, to Simon, to two on the road to Emmaus that I already talked about, to the disciples that night when he appeared behind locked, closed doors. He appeared to the eleven, but there was one guy missing. You know who the guy was? Thomas. Thomas was missing. You know what Thomas said? I am not going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead until I personally can touch him and put my fingers in the wounds in his wrist and my fist in the hole in his side. Then I'll believe what you people are saying. Well, Jesus took him up on the offer. He appeared to him a short time later. Thomas was there. Can you imagine the look on Thomas's face? When Jesus said, oh, by the way, I understand you don't believe that I'm me. Come on over and put your hand, finger in, in this wounds and put your fist in my side. And you know what Thomas did? He didn't get up. He fell on his face. And you know what he said? My Lord and my God. All his unbelief, all his arrogant stubbornness melted in a moment in time when the evidence was laid out before him. Think about that. He appeared to seven disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to over 500 people at one given moment in time. He appeared to James, his half-brother. And now he appears to those, as we'll see, at his ascension into heaven. Jesus appeared often and many times and taught truth. And those men who saw him, their lives were never the same after that. See, these are just some of the reasons that I believe because John 20, as I mentioned, 30 through 31, says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not even written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. I know who I believe in. And I am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed to Him my very eternity, committed to Him against that day, the day of the wrath of God being poured upon the earth, of all humanity who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. I am persuaded, I am convinced, and I know what I believe, and I know why I believe it. And I am committed and convinced that He's able to keep me from the day of God's judgment because Jesus Christ is sufficient for the sins of the world for those who believe. Those are just some of the many reasons why I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you don't believe in all the things that I've just shared with you, what are your reasons for not believing? Are you equally convinced as I am? Are you going to try to tell me that for 2,000 years this hoax of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is continuing and the most intelligent, rational, reasonable people that ever walked the face of the earth have turned their back on what would be the greatest hoax ever portrayed upon humanity? Now, I'm going to tell you, there are many rational, reasonable, logical, intelligent people who set about to disclaim the proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all of them who objectively looked at the evidence, each one to a man and a woman, dropped on their knees and asked God to forgive them for their sin and invited Jesus Christ into their life as their Lord and their Savior the awesome, powerful evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The evidence is overwhelming. That's why I believe in Jesus. That's one of the many reasons I believe in Jesus. And that's why the apostles believe in Jesus Christ. 
And that's why they were excited to complete the work that Jesus began, to finish the work that he had began. And he began to teach them, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. You know, the things of the kingdom of God were God's rule over the hearts of individual men and women. And in its totality, the kingdom of God was the establishment of the Messiah's kingdom here upon this earth. We're going to talk more about that because it's the question that was in the apostles' minds when they said, Jesus, are you now going to establish your kingdom? Because you came to establish your kingdom. We know from the word of God that Jesus will reign here on the face of the earth. Is it time that you establish the kingdom? Man, they believed in him. They trusted in him. The manifestation or the appearance by him after, after his death and his resurrection changed their hearts and their lives. They were excited. They couldn't wait to get going. They couldn't wait to begin to finish the work that Jesus started. And one last thought as we close is this. Is that Jesus summed it up when he talked to Thomas because you and I have not seen, I have not seen Jesus Christ in the flesh subsequent to his resurrection. But it doesn't believe it didn't happen. I mean, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. It doesn't mean that I don't believe that. Because I believe that the evidence is overwhelming. And in fact, Jesus said it best. He said, Thomas, you know, you believe because you saw. Blessed are all those who are to come after you who, even though they don't see me and can't touch me and feel me, yet they still believe. The question for you and the question for all of the world is this. Have you heard the message? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The message of God is that man is separated from God by sin. There is no hope in and of ourselves. There is no hope in humanity. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that I can do. Can't say enough prayers. Can't go to church enough. Can't give up enough money. Can't give up enough bad habits. Whatever we call them. Can't do it on our own. That's the message of God. We are all hopelessly lost. That's bad news. But the good news, the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son into the world that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. The great news of the invitation of Jesus Christ is that anyone, all who would come unto Him, put their faith and trust in Him, that He died for your sins, that He rose from the dead. If you believe that, the Bible says that you are forgiven and you're a child of God to those who believe in the name and the authority of Jesus Christ to forgive your sins. That's a wonderful truth. It's a wonderful message. It's the message that Jesus completed on the cross and and sealed at the resurrection. But it's a message that continues to this day for all of us to finish the unfinished work of Christ in reaching the world with that message. And we can go in the power and understanding that He has risen from the dead. Our faith and trust and and the evidence of the resurrection is essential for, for belief in Jesus Christ. You and I cannot be a Christian and deny the physical bodily resurrection of the dead of Jesus Christ. The great pillars of the Christian faith are the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead. And across the top of that, the Bible says, God so loved the world that whoever believes in this will not perish but have everlasting life. I know what I believe. Do you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ? Man, these guys were chomping at the bit and they couldn't wait to get going. But you know what? Jesus said, hang on a second. I'm not done. You've got to come back. Or you can read it on your own. Father, thank you for this time to be together. We just thank you for your word and the power of it. God, help us to become people who are mindful of the message, that we understand the message that we receive in order that we can now share the message with those who have not heard. God, we just thank you, we love you, we praise you. In Jesus' resurrected name, amen.